listening to this sermon podcast for Real Life Church Pullman. We exist to help people know and become like Jesus. Hey, uh, it's good to be here this morning, and uh, we're going to be jumping into a passage that is a really fun story to look at. It's a really fun section of scripture to dig into. And uh, Gary actually started last week really teaching from this passage in Luke 15. So if you missed last weekend, I would encourage you to go back and get and listen to or watch the message uh, that Gary did uh, out of Luke 15. You can go online. Here's just kind of a sample of where you go and you click on the uh, sermons tab up on the website and then it takes you to a list of you can see where to watch the sermons on video, or you can see how to listen to them on a podcast. So if you're more of a listener than a watcher, you can listen and uh, have those downloaded so that you can catch up if you miss a message or something. But last weekend was really good, and I want to make sure that you don't miss it just in case. Today, we're going to be digging into that same passage of Scripture, but we're going to be taking a look at it in uh, kind of with a different perspective. And one of my challenges this week as a communicator is bringing up and talking about a piece of scripture that is really, really familiar to a lot of people. Not only did Gary start to unpack it a little bit last week, but this story in Luke 15 that is often known as the prodigal son, probably better named the forgiving father, is a passage of scripture that is really familiar. Even if people don't go to church, they've probably heard about this story or some variation of it. And what I want to make sure that you guys hear this morning is uh, something that's really important. Familiarity does not automatically give you full understanding. So just because you're familiar with something and you've heard it a lot or even read it a lot doesn't necessarily mean you fully understand it, okay? Now, just to help us sort of have a reference, for example, let's go somewhere warm, like a beach. Let's say we're at a beach and we have a favorite beach um, and we like going there all the time. We go to the same beach and let's say on your favorite beach, you get really familiar with it because you're there every day. You know where the best driftwood is. You know where the cool tide pool is. You know where this little rock is that you like to stop and sit and have your coffee, right? You know this beach really, really well. And then one of your friends introduces you to something that you've never tried before and you put on some scuba gear or some snorkeling gear and all of a sudden, Outside of this familiar beach, there is a whole new world to explore. It doesn't make anything at the beach less true. It doesn't make any of your previous experience walking the beach uh, less important or valuable. It's just opening up a whole nother level of understanding that there's just more to see than just the beach. And so that's kind of the context that I want to help us have as we approach a familiar passage that a lot of people have heard or heard many lessons taught on in Luke 15 and this prodigal story. So in order to kind of make sure that you guys are with me on this, like kind of come at it from a fresh perspective, put your goggles on, like I'm not sure if I can leave you where you're at. Like I need you to literally literally stand up and get a new perspective. So I want you to stand up. You can swap with the person next to you. You can move across the room. You just cannot sit back where you started. Like I need everybody to move to a different spot. Even if it's just one spot over, that's okay. 
Nice job. Nice job. Okay, now that you are all, good job. Now that you guys have a fresh perspective, right? You're not looking at things the same old way in that seat that you always sit in. You know who you are, right? We've got a new perspective. So with that, let's get ready to jump in, all right? I want you to know as we approach this that Jesus never wastes words. Are you with me? Jesus never wastes any words. So even when he's telling a story to make a point, he doesn't just make up a, a, a story that's of no value just so he can come to the punchline. Even in the story itself, Jesus is intentionally painting pictures, putting things in, the, in people's minds. So as people are listening to these stories in Luke 15, they're, not only are they hearing the details, the lesson, but they're also learning from the things that Jesus uses in the story. And a lot of times, for many of us in a very different world, than the ancient uh, biblical world. We don't see things the way that they see. We don't sometimes catch some of the references that Jesus might give or the things that he infers in a story because it's just not the world that we live in, right? And so with our fresh perspective and your uh, scuba gear on, we're going to kind of look at this passage today and see if we can't glean some of the things that I think his first century audience would have been listening for and catching. Okay, I want you to remember, Jesus is telling these three stories. Sometimes people will say they're three parables. I think Gary was right when he said they're very much more like one parable in three parts, right? Lost sheep, lost coin, lost kid, okay? And so the stories are told as an answer or a, an explanation to some people in specifically, right? So there are Pharisees, religious leaders, teachers of the law who are watching what Jesus is doing. They're watching who he's talking to, who he's hanging out with, what he's doing, how he's behaving, and they're critiquing him. Not in a nice way. It's not constructive criticism. It's just criticism. They're essentially saying to Jesus, we don't think you're doing it right. We are biblically literate. We know what the scriptures say. We know what the law teaches. And we're watching you and you're doing it wrong. And so Jesus, in response to their critique, tells them some stories. And the stories that he tells them are all about answering why he's doing what he's doing. And so you can come with this fresh set of ears that these are stories that are helping Jesus explain why is Jesus being the way he is, accepting invitations to sinners and tax collectors and doing the things and healing the people he's healing and being with the people he's being with. And in all three of these stories, I think there are two key principles that Jesus is trying to really highlight. Number one is that um, people get lost in all sorts of ways. Right? Whether they wander off, whether they've been in the house, and you know, whether you have a religious background, you grew up in church, like people, just because you're in church or you've grown up in church doesn't mean you can't be lost. You wander off, maybe you're rebellious and you purposely go get lost, right? So people get lost in all sorts of ways. And then the second thing he's trying to highlight is that how people get found is really, really important. You guys feel following that? How people get found is really important. So Jesus is trying to normalize something. 
to make it more uh, palatable. Like this is just a real thing. People get lost all the time in all kinds of ways. What he really wants you to know is, is don't get hung up on the fact that people get lost, but what, what is a really big deal is that how they get found matters. And so Jesus is telling these stories to help explain how people get found is a big deal. And one of the things that you see reoccur in these stories, this statement, whether it's the sheep or the coin, it's this idea that the person that finds is really happy, is really excited. In fact, they say, rejoice with me for this lost sheep of mine has been found, right? Rejoice with me, the woman says, after she searches the whole house. Rejoice with me because this lost coin of mine has been found. So there is this celebrating of the found, the, the lost thing being found. And, and I think it's really easy for us to sort of wrap our brain around that when the sheep or the coin or the person who has been lost gets found, kind of symbolically saying that they've committed, they've found Jesus. They've committed their life and put their faith and trust in Jesus, that God's found them, that we can all sort of be like, that's so cool. Somebody that was out there or in here or somewhere that wasn't following God, they've been found and now they know Jesus. They're they're in the house. Like how awesome is that? And we get really excited about that. It's right to get really excited about that. If you've been here the last few weeks and seen baptisms, you saw people getting really excited about people being found. And that's pretty awesome. What I think Jesus is really highlighting in these stories is the way people get found is also a big deal. Because he says, rejoice with me for I have found. There's a couple of things I think that sort of nuances of this picture that I think Jesus is trying to paint. He's trying to paint a picture of what his father is like. His father is like a shepherd who will go to great lengths to find a lost sheep, a a lady who will go to great lengths to find a lost coin, and we'll learn about him as a dad in the story to come. Like his father in heaven, God, is a actively out there looking for, seeking the lost. And when he finds lost people, like many of us were, when God finds them, he looks to his friends and he looks to those followers around and says, rejoice with me. I found what was lost. And then he says, there's more celebrating in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 who stay. And it's like, there, there's this idea that, that we are rejoicing with the finder, not just over the found being found. And I know that's a little bit of a tongue twister, right? And it's like, wait a minute, is it, I thought we were supposed to be happy when someone comes to faith in Christ. Yes, one million percent. Have you ever thought about being happy with the person who partners with God to find that person? Have you ever thought about like sending them a like gift certificate? Like, I want to celebrate with you. You're amazing. You're like epic. The fact that you were willing to partner with God in finding someone who is lost. Like, let me buy you dinner. Let me bake you a cake. Let's throw a party for your willingness to be a finder. There's this peace about celebrating with those that go and look and find, right? And so there's, these things are going on. God, uh, Jesus is trying to help these religious leaders get a real good grip on what his dad is like. 
what God is like. And then he sort of gets them really engaged with those first couple of stories. And then it's like he switches gears on them. He's got their attention. They're clicked in. They're following sort of what he's saying, but then he really switches gears with the third story because in this story, he is going to humanize things. We're going to go from sheep and coins to something that everybody's really familiar with, family. He's like, in this story, there's going to be a dad, and he's actually a really good dad. He's a loving dad. And he has a couple of sons, and his two sons actually sort of grow up and turn out differently. And they had the same house and the same family and the same upbringing. But somehow they seem to just show up and behave and respond differently. And so Jesus tells this story. And I I think one of the things he's trying to do in this story is in a really cool way. He's he's sort of setting the hook for these biblically literate, well-educated Uh, guys that knew the scriptures that are critiquing him, he's sort of setting the hook for them, trying to help them go like, listen, 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 we've got this situation, we've got this story, and and I, I need you to like jump into this story. Who would you be like in this story? How do you identify with this story? What's really sticking out to you in this story? And I think Jesus very much is doing the same thing over and over and over throughout time as people approach this text. I think there is a piece of God's heart going to us as readers of this story now still. Who are you in this story? Who do you identify with in this story? What do you think God's trying to maybe say to you in this story. So we're going to just jump in. Let's look at it. In Luke chapter 15, he says, and as this story starts, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. Now, Gary did an awesome job last week, kind of touching on and unpacking the inheritance issue and the fact that the son was rebelling against the dad. So go back and listen because he'll unpack that and it's, it's really good. We're going to zero in on a little bit different perspective, a little different angle. We're going to look at where the son goes. Because remember what I said, Jesus doesn't waste words. And even in the story, he's teaching Even in the story he uses, he's teaching. And so his first century audience, when they hear this story, things make sense to them that we don't often catch from our really distant perspective. For example, when he says in here, the younger son gathered all he had and took everything on a journey to a far country, that actually meant something to the people that heard it when he told the story. We just imagine an imaginary place, and we don't really give it much credit. But I want us to take a break from the story and go with this younger son to this far country, this place that I think the people listening would have known. And so when he says that he's going to go to a far-off country, here we have Jerusalem over here. 
the big white blob that says Jerusalem across the top of it right there. You got the top of the Dead Sea. You can sort of see the Jordan River Valley up the middle. And if you follow this over here, down through Jericho, you come across the valley, you work your way up over here. That little spot right up there, it says Jerash, and that's the modern day name for it. It's Gerasa in Jesus's time. And that whole region from there up and around the corner is an area that was widely known as the, De- the uh, Decapolis. And so it was called the Decapolis because there were 10 Roman cities scattered throughout that region. And those 10 Roman cities were essentially um, like they were well-known where they worshiped false gods, where they uh, lived as pagans. They were unclean. They were absolutely un-Jewish. And no one from Jerusalem or any God-fearing Jew would ever want to go there for anything. But when Jesus tells this story about this rebellious son that takes his inheritance and goes to a far-off country, his audience would automatically start to think in their head like, oh, I know where he's going. Just like if I said, you know, one of my kids really blew it. He cashed in all of his savings account, and I'm really embarrassed to share this story with you because he took all the money out of his you know, savings, and he packed up his van, and he headed out to gamble it like to see if he could win big. Anybody have any idea where he might have gone? Vegas. I don't have to tell you where he was going. We all know where you go to win big, right? So we have an idea in our mind. So they know that he's going to go to this far off country. And so I want us to go there. Let's take a little journey with the younger son. We're going to go to this town of Gerasah and just kind of imagine what he might have encountered when he gets there. And so as he gets there, one of the first things he's going to see is he's going to be met with this huge city gate, that is unlike anything he's familiar with. This is a, a younger son, and this story would have been from a very rural community. He might have had a friend group of dozens. Highly unlikely, he would have known a 100 people in his entire lifetime. And so he goes to this place. This is still there to this day. This is known as the Hadrian Gate. It's because they uh, celebrated the visit of the emperor of Rome, Hadrian, at the time. It's been rebuilt and fixed up, but it's the exact uh, you know, same gate, many of the same parts and pieces. Some of them have been fixed, but it gives you an idea of the size and the scale of this gate. And so you've got this younger son who grew up memorizing Torah. He knows God's word. He knows the law. He's got his tassels on, right? He's wearing his tassels. He knows that, that he's, the scriptures say that he's a, a holy nation, a, a royal priesthood, that he's to put his God on display. And he comes up against this thing and he sees this and it would have had in the little nooks statues of uh, the Caesar that would have said essentially in every way, shape and form, here Caesar is God. Here, Caesar has power. Caesar has the authority. Rome is in charge. A very different message than what he learned growing up. And then as he sits and observes at this gate, even the gate itself, the whole architecture of it is like a giant billboard advertising something radically different than what he knew. It's advertising something radically different. Any of us with no history, no understanding of anything can look at this and automatically, you know, right at a glance, there's something big about going through the middle. It feels important. It feels more importanter than going through the side, right? 
you just look at the side gates and you're like, yeah, what were those for? That must have been like where the animals went through. Or you can start to speculate, like, why are they so small and why is the middle so big? And that's on purpose because in this world, in this Roman worldview, uh, there was essentially a class system. There were the haves and the have-nots. There were people that were uh, blessed to be from the right family or from the right lineage or have the right last name. And with that came privilege, like going through the middle of the gate. And everybody else would have to go through the outside gates like slaves or commoners. But you might say to yourself, well, I'm the younger son. I've done pretty good for myself. I mean, it's not like I'm broke. I showed up into town with a huge sack full of money. Like, I'm doing pretty good. Like, which gate do I go through? Yeah, you go through the side with the slaves. But I'm not a slave. I'm a free guy with a bunch of money. You're not important either. And you need to know that before you ever come into this town. He's wrestling with this new way of thinking about who's important and who's not important and and who is valuable here and who's not valuable here. And so I think he is pulled by the allure of the city and the sounds and the smells and the excitement and the wondering what's in there. And I don't think he's ready to tear off his tassels or tuck them in his pockets. I don't think he's ready to abandon his God by any stretch. Not a a guy that's grown up memorizing and knows God's word inside out, upside down in his heart like any good young Jewish boy would have done. And now as a young man, I don't think he's ready to cash that in too quick, but he goes in. And as he goes in, What are some of the things that he would have seen? He would have gone in and quickly he would have encountered uh, the Artemis temple. And so off to the side, he would see this temple to this goddess Artemis, who was a god that they worshiped for crops or harvest and hunting. And then not very far off next to the uh, Artemis temple would have been another temple that was impossible to miss, this temple to Dionysus, which I don't actually have a picture of that one. I don't know of uh, ruins that are still intact, but uh, Dionysus, which was the goddess of wine and orgy. It might be a good thing that we don't have a picture of it. You get it, right? Like it's taking a wrong turn in Vegas. You end up in a place you're like, ooh, this is way more than I bargained for. That's the temple to Dionysus. And he goes by that. And then as he keeps going along up on the horizon, you can see in a high spot this temple, a temple to a god that if you don't even know who the god is yet, by the size of the columns, the magnitude of the temple, the scope of the building, you automatically know whoever is worshipped here is a big deal. And it was a big deal because it was the temple to Zeus. And as he goes along through the rest of the city, he would hear the roar of the crowd. He would hear the the theater and, and all of the crowd shouting. This is the epicenter of entertainment in a Roman city. Some of them seating as many as 70,000 people with no microphone system. And it's amazing, the engineering, all built to tell the story of how awesome Rome is and how powerful Caesar is. And then the further he works his way through the city, he gets up near the top of the city and he sees something the likes of which he's never seen, probably never even dreamed up in his mind because it's so foreign to him. He sees a thing called a nymphaeum. Try that, nymphaeum. So that is a fancy word for fountain. This that you're looking at is one 
extraordinary, elaborate, amazing work of architecture and engineering that a farm kid from rural Jerusalem that went to a well with a bucket would have never even imagined could exist. This thing, all the top columns up there and all the little holes in it would have been filled with statues of Caesar and depicting how Rome brings life and Rome brings harvest and Rome brings peace and, and, and Rome brings power. And literally in this entire thing, Rome actually brings, like by the power of Caesar, water springs forth from rock. And out of these holes you see across the bottom would have been streams of water, not just like a little trickle. We're talking fire hydrant water, major engineering, filling up this huge uh, basin in the front that behind that little bowl thing is a huge pool. And it would have filled up this huge pool and the water running and splashing. When you live in an agricultural community where your life depends on water, your crops and your animals depend on water, and it is a scarce, scarce resource, and you walk into a place for the first time where you see a towering piece of architecture that's spitting water out at you, <laughs> yeah, you're going to sit there for a minute. Overwhelmed, awestruck beside yourself, like I think probably here maybe for the first time, wondering if everything he thought was true is still really true. Like is what he learned growing up in the Torah, is that really true? Because there is something different being said here and it's hard to argue with water coming out of a rock. But I think even in all of this, it probably wasn't the stuff that would have really got this young man off track. I think a young man that grew up committed to his faith, committed to the scriptures, committed to wearing his tassels, like, like I don't think he would have been too quick to cash in and just totally abandon what he had learned his whole life. But I think there was something along the way. And, and Jesus actually kind of drops a little hint for us in the way he tells the story. And then that hint actually lines up with other teaching from Scripture that sort of reiterates the hint, and we'll unpack it, right? I think the thing that might have really taken, taken this younger son by surprise, that might have led to him getting pulled off track, was actually something that probably all of us are really susceptible to, and it's a little embarrassing to admit, but it's just stuff, things. Because what you don't know, because you haven't been here and walked these streets, is if you get to see some of the streets in this town, typical of any Roman town, you would see streets like this. All of these columns are essentially like little porticos, separate shops. This particular street in Garrison, there's a road over a mile long. A mile of bumper-to-bumper shops like in your mind, in our life experience, what you have to imagine is like the most epic farmer's market you could ever go to or the most epic flea market you could ever go to. And you're a kid that's been from a small town and you've only ever had like the same kind of robe and you only had the same kind of slippers. And all of a sudden it's like Nike, Jordan, Air, this, Air. It's like everywhere, right? And literally you're going down these streets and people are just shoving stuff in your face like, you've got to have this. This is the best thing ever. Oh my gosh, you're going to love this. Like all the girls 
girls are wearing it right now. This is going to taste so good. Like, it's going to be the most amazing thing. You are going to love this. You've got to have this new gadget. This is the coolest thing. And if you don't buy it from me, you're going to pay way more down the road, right? Like, on and on and on, all the way down the road, you're just getting things shoved in your face constantly. And, and over time, it's easy to walk by the temple to the God that you actually don't believe in. It's easy to walk by the prostitution and the sexual immorality that sort of just repulses you because it's such a far stretch from the world that you grew up in. But all of a sudden, you're just beat up by all of the stuff coming at you from every which way. And you start to actually wrestle with this idea that, gosh, I don't know, I think I might actually need that. I, I, I mean, I've never seen one of those before, but now that I've seen it, I just don't know how I can unsee it. And, and, and I, I think I have to have it. And I think this is where this younger son goes awry because that's the way the text tells the story. That's how Jesus unpacks the story is it says that he goes to this far off country to a place like this and he squandered everything he had on reckless living, some translations say, or wild living. A really good literal translation is that, is that he blew all his money on extravagant living. Now we could maybe guess that that might have had to do with sexual sin or, or temptations of those types. But, but I don't think so. I think what it means is that he blew his money living beyond his means. Like he just spent and spent and spent until all of a sudden he found nothing there. He literally spent his way into poverty. And this is a, something that I think Jesus is highlighting in this parable. The way that he came to the end of himself, I don't think we should miss. It's easy to read this story and go, I'm familiar with it. I've heard it a thousand times. And the, you know, bad things happen and he's ready to go home. right? And we miss the way that he spent himself into poverty. It's an issue that God was really concerned about for his people. In fact, in Deuteronomy, when God was warning the people about going into the promised land, he basically, kind of paraphrasing real quickly, essentially said to him, like, listen, you're going to go somewhere and you're going to live in houses you didn't build. You're going to get water out of wells you didn't dig. You're going to enjoy the fruit and the harvest of crops that you didn't plant and vineyards that you didn't take care of. And it's going to be awesome. It's going to be so good. But be warned, you're going to get full, and you're going to get fat, and you're going to get lazy, essentially, and it's going to get easy. And when it gets easy, and when you're full, it's going to be really easy to get distracted and not be focused on what God's called you to do and who God's called you to be. And Jesus said the same thing in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. When Jesus tells this other parable about the parable of the sower, he's addressing uh, this idea that um, a sower casts seed it lands on different kinds of soil and those represent your heart. You can go read the rest of the parable on your own. But he explained, he's like, you know, he sows it on like this and he sows it over here and he sows it over here and he sows it over here. Later on, the disciples are with Jesus and they're like, hey, could you spell that one out for us? We're a little confused. Like, I can't figure out if I'm rock or thorn or what. You know, they're like, I, I think I missed that one. And so Jesus, after some debate, 
explains it to them. And one of the things that he highlights is that there is a type of soil that, or, or a type of seed that can land among the thorns. And it says that the, those uh, are uh, the ones that hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke out the word and it proves unfruitful. Like Jesus is saying something that his father warned his people of even long before, like Like riches and wealth in and of themselves is not bad, but man, the desire, the thing, the the temptations that come with success, the temptations that come with wealth are, are the desire for things and the desire for things. He's like, I'm warning you. It's like trying to plant something in a thorn bush. It's going to choke it out. It's really hard to get your faith grown up among thorns. It's really hard, younger son, to take a sack full of money to Vegas and try and be wise with how you spend it. It's really hard. And so the younger son, at the end, <coughs> at the end of this story here, he gets to this spot where he's spent himself into poverty. The sack is empty and he is out of money. He's lonely. He's hungry. And he's realizing this horrible irony that the very things that he wanted to bring him happiness, the things that he wanted to bring him contentment and excitement and joy, they've sort of worn off really quick. They've lost their shine. And now he really, he's really just hungry. And so he hires himself out to a person that feeds pigs and manages and takes care of pigs. This is a humiliating job. If you could think in your life, what is the most humiliating thing you would ever have to do for money? That's the the level of humiliation. This is embarrassing beyond belief to have this job. He hires himself out to feed pigs, and not only any pigs, no doubt these were pigs that would have been used in the sacrificial system of Zeus and Artemis, and so they would have been sacrificing these pigs. So he's feeding animals that are unclean that no Jew would ever even want to be near that are going to be used to worship gods he doesn't even believe in. So what does he do? He gets to this spot. There's a famine. Things get even worse. He gets to this spot, and it says in the scripture that he uh, comes to his senses. And a really good translation of this is that he thinks to himself. Uh, And so like the scripture says, when he finally came to his senses, he said to himself, a way for us to think about this is like when he finally came to his senses, he thought to himself, Jesus is sort of putting words in this imaginary younger son in the story. He's putting words in his mouth or in his head. He thought to himself, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare. And here I am dying of hunger. I will go home to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. Please take me on as a hired servant. And a lot of us who are familiar with this passage and have read it of like, finally, the guy came to his senses. We misunderstand that what's happening here is that he's really repentant. He's brokenhearted. He's all tore up and he's ready to go home. That's not what's happening here. Look at what it says. He's like, listen, I finally figured it out. I finally figured it out. There's a way that I can get out of the mess that I'm in. 
I can go home. I can get hired on. He's got a scheme. This is just this young kid, broke and hungry, doing a job he hates, thinking there's got to be a better way. And I figured it out. I know how to fix me. I know how to fix my circumstances. I'm going to go home and beg and plead with, with my dad to get hired on as a servant. And what's interesting is in a really Jewish, <clears throat> cool way, Jesus, who's using this story to teach very biblically literate, smart teachers of the law. He puts words in the the younger son's mouth that his audience would have been familiar with from somewhere else. So Jesus has this younger son saying, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you, and I've sinned against heaven, you know, and I got to come back and make things right. These are the very words that Pharaoh said to Moses. uh, Pharaoh said to Moses, I've sinned against heaven, I've sinned against you. Tell your God to forgive me, like lay off all these plagues. And in that very same passage, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And so his audience knows, like, this guy's not repentant. He's just coming up with a scheme. He's, like, doubling down on his way as the right way. Even if it's terrible, he's going to stick with trying to figure out his own plans. And so he starts to make that journey home. And we all think we sort of know how the story ends. We've read it lots of times. We've looked at it lots of times. Next week... You get to find out maybe a different perspective with your goggles on. So bring your swim goggles back next week because we're going to look at the rest of the story. Thanks for checking out this message from Real Life. You can find out more about us by going to rlcpullman.com or by following us on Facebook or YouTube. Until next time, have a great week.